0: Fearless, a pusher of boundaries and controversial, Paul Mooney is simply a legend. Among the numerous comedians he went on to inspire, Dave Chappelle was one of them. In the introduction to Mooney's memoir, Black is the New White, Chappelle explains how the famous sketch from Saturday Night Live's first season, where Richard Pryor plays a prospective employee playing a word association game, inspired him to comedy greatness. Chappelle looked up to Richard Pryor as a stand-up comedy god, but then he discovered that it was a man called Paul Mooney behind many of Pryor's jokes. In addition to the sketch on Saturday Night Live, seeing a black man on TV holding his own with a white man was television history, and it also gave Chappelle a direction in life. Paul Mooney would never become as famous as the people he wrote for, which a short list includes Red Fox, Eddie Murphy, and Chappelle, but self assured, true to himself, and ruthless in his comedy, he nevertheless became a force to be reckoned with. As we mark our first year of House of Words, we decided to explore the comedic stylings of someone special, someone who told countless truths within his jokes, someone who didn't care about offending as long as he got real, someone who was fearless welcome to house of words a podcast about writers the controversial and the thought-provoking i'm your host jason namor hardin and today we're exploring the career and life of the late great paul Mooney through three of his most famous and career-defining moments Tell a joke. And if it's a good joke, it turns into a virus. Spreads faster than a flu. If there actually ever is a real killer joke, we'll all be dead. It'll hit us quicker than a jab from Ali's right hand. End quote. Paul Glatney was born on August 4, 1941 to Lavoya Ely and George Glatney, both of whom were only 16 years old at the time. His life would be tumultuous even before coming out of the womb. Case in point, five weeks prior to his birth, his mother Lavoya was involved in a bus accident and it was nothing short of a miracle that they both survived the ordeal. Seeing as his parents were but children themselves, the most important person in his life became his mother's mother, Ime Ely, whom everyone referred to as Mama. Mama was petite, but she carried herself as though she was ten feet tall. Mama was bold, strong, and tough, evidenced by the fact that she crawled into bed with a two-pound roofing hammer every night snugged up against her, just in case. Paul was her special baby, her favorite, and she did her best to protect him from the racism and prejudice that existed in Shreveport, Louisiana at the time. She did all she could to provide him with all the love a child could need. Not only was she a mother figure to Paul, but to the whole neighborhood. If she caught any child misbehaving, she wasn't one to spare the rod, and on top of that, would then make them go home to tell about it. One of Mama's supreme lessons to Paul was, ain't nobody thinking they're better than us. Paul took this to heart. The first time he hears the word nigger, a word he was never shy about using, is from the neighbor's parrot, Feathers, who repeats the word, the only word it knows, all day long. Ever since then, every time he heard the word, he thought of feathers. But Mama hated the bird, and when they left Louisiana for Oakland, California, when Paul was seven years old, Mama told him that she poisoned the parrot before they left. They both had a good laugh as they left Louisiana behind. In Oakland, moving into a neighborhood with Italian, Jewish, Irish, and black families living side by side, Paul hears the word both as a slur and a term of affection. It's clear that Mama can kill the parrot, but she can't stop all the people in the Oakland ghetto from tossing the word around as if it's nothing. It was also while living in Oakland that Mama first refers to him as Mooney. She never explains why, however. He later speculates that it might have been due to his being a slow eyed, moony, dreamy looking child, but he never finds out conclusively. Either way, pretty soon, that's how he thinks of himself. He's not Paul Ely or Paul Gladney. He's Paul Mooney. His mother didn't have a steady job, which consequently meant that money came in waves. Basically, they were poor. When Mooney was 14 years old, his mother moves them out of Oakland to Berkeley. She's trying to straighten out her life and get away from the crowd she runs with. It's the very first time he is away from the safety and love of Mama. And even though Mama only lives 10 miles away, it feels like he's been shoved out of the nest. His search to replace the love he's missing leads him to the perception that applause equals love. That same year, 1955, He becomes the king of hambone dancing in Berkeley. Hambone is creating beats by using your palms and hitting your chest or legs. All the movie theaters have hambone contests before shows. He soon finds himself on stage and consequently wins the first contest he enters. He is immediately bitten by the performance bug. Applause equals love. And he wants more of it. Due to the strong foundation of love that Mama has given him, he doesn't buckle under the weight of racism in the years of his adolescence. He simply does not buy into the belief that he is beneath or inferior to anyone. Hambone leads to a number of dance contests, which leads to one of the biggest shows in television in the Bay Area, K Pick's Dance Party, hosted by Dick Stewart. One must keep in mind that it's 1959, and given that he is dancing with black, Asian, and white girls, he challenges the status quo. Not a thought-out move on his part, he just does what feels natural. The show receives its share of hate mail, but the producers never backtrack. Mooney then manages to get his cousin Alice on the show as well, and she dances with all the white boys. It seems for a moment there as if he is single-handedly integrating American television, which will much later be the plot of the John Waters' 1988 movie, Hairspray. Dan's party leads to more fame, which equals more love, and he feels like he's living a dream he didn't even know he desired. Well, the consequences of big dreams are even bigger ones. By his last year of high school, he ventures towards the theater where he takes part in a skit based on Little Red Riding Hood, where he plays the wolf. While looking out into the school audience, he notices that whoever isn't laughing is squirming uncomfortably in their chairs. He realizes that he loves that. Either you laugh or you get uptight. After a stint in the army while visiting his girlfriend at Ann's 440 Club, he is present to see legendary stand-up comedian Lenny Bruce perform. Bruce is doing some of the material that would soon land him in jail on several occasions, and for Mooney, it's a life-changing experience. He starts catching all the stand-up shows he's able to, and soon concludes that if they can do it, so can he. He helps found a black improv group that is eventually called the Yankee Doodle Betbugs. They perform any and everywhere they can in back rooms of bars, small clubs, even in living rooms of private homes. Improv is the most exhilarating and terrifying thing he's ever done, and he's taken by it. Well, soon thereafter, he is encouraged by friends to do his first solo stand-up routine. But being nervous and flustered, once he enters the stage, he goes on autopilot and performs the act of Ronnie Shell, a comedian he's seen perform, practically verbatim. It's the same jokes, the same patter, the same act. As he would later write, he would pop his stand-up cherry with another man's dick. Fortunately, no one recognizes it, and on top of that, he even gets a few laughs. During his rise in stand-up comedy, he befriends fellow comedian Richard Pryor, Prior is living a fast and wild life full of alcohol, women, and cocaine, which is the polar opposite of Mooney. Nevertheless, they connect and soon become best friends. It is in 1970 that Paul Mooney is born as a true stand-up comedian on the stage of Joan Rivers Club, Ye Little Club in Beverly Hills. He kicks off his act by talking about what he finds funniest, which is race. And being born as a comedian, similar to birthing a child, it is far from a pretty spectacle, and he doesn't get the response he hoped for. Joan Rivers, however, understands what he's going for and has him back again and again, allowing him to test out his routine, seeing what works and what doesn't. And when on stage, he watches the audience like a hawk, analyzing little ticks, tells, and reactions they don't even know they're having. He studies them, not missing a thing. He pushes his jokes, making people often get up and leave. He finds enjoyment in pushing it too far. This is how he finds his first true audience, black people and brave white people. Quote, I think about never losing my voice, never giving in, never selling out, always keeping black, always sticking to the street, staying neighborhood, not Hollywood. End quote. By 1972, Mooney and Pryor are great friends, and with the ever-escalating fame of Pryor, they are both asked by fellow comedian Red Fox to write for his sitcom to be Sanford and Son, on television network NBC. Fox wants black writers for it. Mooney and Pryor both get their Writers Guild cards for doing two episodes in the second season and an additional episode in season three. But controversy soon follows. Fred Sanford, Legal Eagle. The 53rd episode of Sanford and Son and the 15th episode of the third season would air on January 11th, 1974. Mooney writes the story and the script title. According to him, it is the reason he gets blacklisted in Hollywood. The episode in question has Lamont, played by Damond Wilson, disgusted when he receives a traffic ticket for failure to yield on a right turn. Lamont is sure he did the most prudent thing for the situation and lets Fred, played by Fox, talk him into fighting the ticket in court. Lamont is prepared to fight for himself, but once in the courtroom, he finds himself being represented by Fred, and hilarity ensues. The controversy comes from dealing with the blatant racism exercised by many police officers when dealing with blacks, and it is immediately deemed too angry by NBC. Mooney doesn't consider himself angry at all. He is just dedicated to keeping himself real, even when writing for a major network. In an earlier scene of the episode, Fred Sanford tells his son Lamont that if he had a green light, like he claims he did, he couldn't get a ticket. Lamont replies that you very much can get a ticket for running a green light if the light is green and you're black and the cop is white. Fred then tells Lamont that if that is the case, he needs to fight it. Lamont tells his father that it's ridiculous that you can't win a case like that. Fred then returns by saying that he's not being ridiculous, saying, quote, You get a ticket from a white cop in a blue uniform in a black neighborhood. It makes you so mad that you're seeing red, but you ain't going to fight it because you're too yellow. Now what are you, a man or a box of crayons? The audience burst out with laughter. And later in the episode, Inside the Courtroom, Fred points out to the officer by asking him, Why doesn't he arrest any white drivers? When the officer says that he does, Fred gestures to all the black people in the docket and responds that all he sees are niggers in there. The studio audience goes nuts, absolutely crazy with laughter. Most of the audience members are from Los Angeles, and they know what the policy is for driving while black. Fred has to wait for the laughter and applause to die down before he can unleash Mooney's tail-end zinger, declaring, There's enough niggers in here to make a Tarzan movie. It was the fifth time the word was used throughout the series up to that point, and though it was shown in 1976 on rerun with the entire courtroom scene in front of the judge left intact, it is being censored today. Even when it came out on DVD, the scene was completely removed. Despite being the writer for a TV show, Mooney is far from successful enough to take it easy. He works almost every night, either at the Comedy Store or Ye Little Club, but seeing as that doesn't put food on the table since comedians aren't getting paid for their stand-up at the time, he finds alternative income ventures. The old-fashioned burlesque shows, the ones that put comics on between the strippers, are dying out. But there are still a few left and he deems himself quite lucky to do a dozen short sets for $50 a night. Soon, however, Richard Pryor is sought after by up-and-coming producer and creator Lauren Michaels, which leads to Mooney finding himself again writing for TV. Quote, As writers, we're the lowest men on the film business totem pole. We hear a joke about a girl, the dumbest-ass bitch in the world. She wants to break into movies. She goes to Hollywood and fucks the screenwriter. Producers will always kill you with praise before delivering their favorite line. Your script is perfect. Let me tell you how to change it. Hollywood producers have fucked up more movies than they've ever gotten made. They ruin scripts that would have been classics. They're like ass-backward steel skins. They spend gold into straw. End quote. It's 1975, and Lauren Michaels, who will become one of the most famous television producers in the world in just a few years, wants Richard Pryor on the inaugural season of his next creation, Saturday Night Live. John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Gilda Radner, and Dan Aykroyd aren't household names yet, and Michaels thinks Richard Pryor is what he needs. Mooney explains it very elegantly in his book, Lauren Michaels Needs Pryor and Richard Pryor wants Paul Mooney. Without Mooney, Lauren Michaels can't have Richard Pryor. Richard plays hard to get. He doesn't particularly care for Lauren Michaels, but in the end, he agrees to join the cast. This is how Paul Mooney becomes part of the deal and gets behind the typewriter again. Saturday Night Live is on NBC, and the executive producers aren't accustomed to dealing with black writers, especially not black writers with power and leverage. They have a meeting with Mooney where they ask questions, trying to understand his sense of humor and his ideas for sketches. They ask more questions, and then even more questions. Now, a few years earlier, Pryor had told Mooney how he was starting to see horns and forked tongues on all the producers he was in contact with. Mooney thought it might have been visual illusions brought on by all the drugs Pryor was taking, but now, surrounded by them, watching them smile... Answering their barrage of questions, he also sees the horns and the forked tongues. The set for the show is barely a few steps above a drug house. Weed, heroin, pills, and, Pryor's favorite, cocaine, run freely. Richard doesn't develop particularly close ties with any cast members from the show, except John Belushi, whom also loves cocaine. Though Pryor seems to be finding his place, or at least dealing with the show because of the drugs it provides in addition to a paycheck, Mooney is butting heads with Lorne Michaels and NBC executives who do not understand his sense of humor. As a reaction to this, he writes what will become one of the most famous sketches in SNL history. And the sketch is known by numerous names, word association being the most prevalent, but also racist word association interview, racist word association, and dead honky. The role played by Chevy Chase is the boss, interviewing Pryor's character for a janitor's position. Chase's character suggests that they do some word association in order to see how good a fit Pryor's character would be for employment. Starting with colors, it soon turns to increasingly more offensive anti-black racial slurs, climaxing with Chase saying spade, to which Pryor says honky honky. Chase's character then ups it by saying, nigger, to which Pryor angrily spits, dead honky. Chase's character, becoming frightened, offers Pryor's character the job. The sketch is shot in front of a live studio audience and shown on December 13th, 1975, in real time. The audience reacts with gasps and hollers and panicked laughter. In other words, the bit kills. By basing it on his own experience at the meeting with Michaels and the NBC execs, it's the easiest sketch he's ever written. It becomes a fan favorite. Don Cheadle, Keegan-Michael Key, and Albert Brooks all cite the sketch as their favorite, and in 2014, Rolling Stone ranks the sketch number 10 in their list of the 50 greatest Saturday Night Live sketches of all time. In addition to this, the sketch has been cited in academic works on racism. The piece opens doors for both Pryor and Mooney, but the experience with NBC is far from liberating and Mooney chooses to continue focusing on stand-up comedy. Quote, I love jokes, I love gags, I love punchlines. That's who I am. I know this puts me totally out of step with the times. Every stand-up comic in the universe nowadays runs away from jokes like they are the Black Plague. Why was the plague black? Didn't it kill mostly white people? Shouldn't it be called the White Plague? Jokes are old-fashioned. Comics do situations now. But I love jokes because they are straight. End quote. And before his biggest success finds him, Mooney's son, Simeon, is shot and killed in 2001. Now, the kid who shoots him, somebody he knows and hangs out with, later drives to Las Vegas, checks himself into a hotel, and commits suicide. The incident is pure torture and the whole Mooney family is emotionally wrecked by it. Mooney takes comfort in that his dear mama died a year earlier in 2000 and doesn't have to suffer through losing her great-grandson. It seems like he's surrounded by death. Nothing feels funny. It's the most difficult time in his career. But he has to work. He has a family to support and though he doesn't want to, he picks up the microphone and does his routines. Fortunately, things take a positive turn when in 2003, Dave Chappelle invites him to join the cast of the new sketch show he is creating in collaboration with Comedy Central. It's got an informal, just friends hanging out at a party vibe with a familiar edge to it. Mooney has seen Chappelle around, and he likes him. He recognizes that he's a smart and funny black man, which are all the qualities he likes in his comedians. It is also these same qualities that will surely make it hard for him to find his place in Hollywood. And Chappelle, for his part, has put together an ensemble that includes Charlie Murphy, Bill Burr, and Donnell Rawlings, among others. When Dave asks Mooney to write for him, Mooney is hesitant. He likes the kid, but still he lays out his conditions for agreeing to be a part of the show right away. I've been in this business too long, Mooney tells Chappelle. I can't get into another bullshit situation where I have producers and executives picking apart my shit. Dave gives his word that no execs will mess with his stuff, and thus Paul Mooney agrees to join. Paul writes a sketch inspired by Nostradamus. He figures that, since white people have the alleged foreseer of the future Nostradamus, he will create a black version of him. He will be called Negrodamus and give a very different prediction of the future. Dressed up in a tricked-out burgundy top hat, a French beard, and a doublet, he takes controversial questions from the audience and replies with equally controversial answers. Making fun of people such as Michael Jackson, George Bush, Rosie O'Donnell, and Star Jones, it's clear that nothing is off-topic. Mooney will later praise Chappelle for accomplishing the very difficult feat of running interference between him and the Comedy Central execs behind the show. Chappelle keeps his word. No one messes with Paul Mooney's sketches and ideas. After the airing of Negro Damas, Mooney is recognized more by this character than any other. Even without the advantage of mass advertising campaigns, Chappelle's show is a huge success, selling more than three million copies on DVD, becoming the best-selling TV show on DVD at the time. As with all things having their end, this one being a man who put smiles on many faces and filled the world with laughter, the man who never sold his soul, died at age 79 on May 19, 2021. He would leave behind a legacy that's as grand as he was, before we go, as usual, let me leave you with one last quote from the original King of Comedy. Know your history. Handshaking means I don't have a weapon in my hand. That's how it started. To keep people from getting medieval on each other's asses. The hell with that. I don't want nobody knowing nothing about my shit. I don't want them to know whether or not I got a weapon. People I run into sometimes? Yeah. They need to think I got a mini stiletto curled up inside my hand. That's right. Or a tiny Abraham Lincoln killing style Derringer. Or some pepper spray shit. You know what I mean? Fist bump now. Don't give me no white man's handshake. Fist bump. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And with that... This episode marking our one-year anniversary, we at House of Words want to sincerely thank all of you. Whether you've been with us from the beginning or have just recently knocked at our door, we truly hope that you will stick around for another year and so on and so on as we continue our journey through the worlds of authors and writers and their words. Also, we've decided to do a small giveaway as a token of our appreciation we will randomly choose a name from our Patreon list and send out the book of your choice from the episodes we've done thus far. In addition, the lucky person will receive a House of Words t-shirt. So, if you haven't signed up yet, here is the perfect opportunity. Maybe you will be the lucky winner. If not, you're still and always will be a winner in our book. No pun intended. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemo Harden. Please continue to spread the word and help in any way you can to make this show easier to produce by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Christo M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Limor Harden. And music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Limor Harden.